only people that know what problems need solving in hog production are people in the industry. And typically those people in the industry are not, they don't bring the technology side to bear. And so we have to find a way to kind of bridge that gap. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here, you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swinet Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Just All, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in a high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions. Minitube, the worldwide leading supplier of systems for the field of assisted animal reproduction. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Merck Animal Health, driven by prevention. Evonik, we are sciencing the global food challenge. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Every pig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show. My name is Marcia Gonçalves, your host for today's episode. This episode's sponsor highlight is Adiseo, a worldwide leader in animal nutrition. Our company offers specialized technical support for nutritionists, veterinarians, and other animal production professionals. Our portfolio of programs and services include a wide array of high-performing feed solutions such as essential nutrients, palatability, feed preservation, mycotoxin management, and health and nutrition. To learn more about our company, visit us at www.adiseo.com. Hello, everyone. Today, we have Jeanette Barnard uh, with us here in the show, and uh, we're going to chat about the future of pork. Welcome to the show, Jeanette. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Appreciate our time today. And, and for folks that don't know, if you can share a background in your journey so far before we jump into the future of pork. Yeah, absolutely. I'll just give a brief background here. So I grew up on a farm in Southeast Arizona. Uh, my family raised chili peppers primarily, but also grew some other crops and then ran cattle. Um, and then went to University of Arizona, studied agriculture economics, joined Elanco Animal Health right out of school. And there I spent about five years in their uh, commercial poultry business had zero experience with poultry going into that. So that was uh, certainly an eye-opening time. And left Elanco to go to business school at Texas A&M, did an internship with Cargill's Canada Beef Operations and McDonald's Global Supply Chain team, uh, working on their the pilot project at that time, which was verified sustainable beef uh, that Cargill in, in Canada and McDonald's was working on together. So kind of got a little, dip my toe in the sustainable sustainability world at that point, and then really got into the technology side of, of the ag industry after that. Um, as I was looking at coming out of business school, I was thinking, you know, where where do I really want to want to play? Where do I want to try and make an impact? And what I was seeing at that time was there are some big problems in agriculture where technology can play a huge part in being part of the solution. So my first uh, foray right out of business school was uh, launching a company called the Poultry Exchange. So the real problem we were trying to solve was the problem of price discovery in poultry. And um, and think of when I say price discovery, I'm talking about when a Tyson or a Sanderson is selling truckloads of fresh meat to a Cisco um, or, or a KFC, right? And uh, if you follow the news much at all, even very remotely, very loosely, uh, there have been a lot of news in the last couple of years about the poultry industry as it relates to pricing um, with some executives that have been indicted with um, multiple civil lawsuits with a, you know, a, a probe by the uh, Department of Justice. Um, it's, it's really been quite a topic. So my first company was focused on solving that, raised around a capital, built a team, uh, went to go launch that product. And right as, as, we, as we were launching was when the first of the civil lawsuits were brought forward. And so everybody just kind of stopped. Nobody was interested in uh, trying anything new um, as it related to price discovery. And so did that for a couple of years and then shut that company down, joined a venture-backed company out of San Francisco that was selling uh, price forecasting uh, software, uh, software as a service into a lot of the large meat processors. So, you know, 
the Cargills, the JBSs, the Johnsonville sausages, uh, companies that were trying to either buy a raw material or sell a product that was, uh, the pricing was tied to a commodity market. Did that for a few years, scaled that team, uh, sales and marketing, and then uh, left at the end of 2019, joined up with a former colleague of mine, uh, Carrie Ann Coker from Alanco, uh, in, in a company called Rock Road Consulting. And so we've been working with uh, either, we really say it as companies that launch source and fund innovation. So everything from established companies that are looking to access new technology from startups to startups that are looking to launch products into the livestock market um, and, and, and venture investors that are looking to fund innovation in this space. Um, and sort of my, what, what connected you and I, of course, is, is Prime Future. So I, I call that, I laughingly call that my COVID project. Uh, I started that in, uh, in the last spring, 2020. And really the objective there was uh, just kind of start a conversation about uh, innovation in animal agriculture specifically. So if you look at the broader ag tech world, a lot of the dollars flow to the crop side, a lot of the attention flows to the crop side, and there's very little emphasis placed on animal agriculture. So my objective was, how do I highlight this space? How do we, you know, start some meaningful conversations around the problems to be solved and some of the barriers to be overcome in launching tech products? And so with that, I've, I've done a weekly newsletter here for about the last year called, uh, called Prime Future. I love it. That's great stuff. Great background there i love technology and so so i'm excited for the next for the next few minutes as well so the first topic here uh janette is um you know is animal protein the next tech frontier what's your thoughts there i know you've written about it yes i do have some thoughts there um absolutely so so like i said i mean if you look at if you look at ag tech and so first of all a lot of people would say that uh, they point to the ag agriculture industry as a whole. And um, I think it was McKinsey that put out a report a few years ago, and they rank traditional industries by level of digitization, which is absolutely a meaningless measure, um, in, in my opinion. But nonetheless, they always, agriculture is ranked at the bottom of their report, right? They look at like the shipping industry, the oil and gas industry, all of these, and they say all of these traditional industries have digitized, um, whether that's in terms of workflow, in terms of supply chains, in terms of decision-making, whatever that looks like. Um, and, they, and they say agriculture is at the bottom. So with that, a lot of uh, a lot of entrepreneurs have looked at the space and said, "Oh, there's a big industry with low dig digitization. That means there's opportunities for technology, right?" And a lot of investors have had that same thought process. So, if you look over like the last five years, the amount of venture capital funding specifically that's flown into the space, uh, I should say flowed into the space, not flown into the space, <laughs> um, is it, it's pretty significant, right? But then if you break that down further, I think in I think in 2019, it was around $19 billion uh, in venture capital that flowed into ag tech, according to ag funder. Um, if you break that down and then further into technology for the crop side versus the animal ag side, um, and really looking at it all the way from animal health, animal nutrition, genetics, all of those inputs into livestock production through to meat processing. It's a, it's a fraction. And we don't even really have a good number of, of how much of the total ag tech funding pie that animal ag tech represents, right? It's that that's how low on the radar it is. We don't have a good number. That being said, I've been uh, over the last several months as part of, you know, kind of some conversations and in, in doing research for Prime Future, talking with venture investors really around the globe about, you know, tell me, tell me how for every 10 crop focused startups that you see? How many animal ag focused startups do you see? And the answer is very consistently in all regions from Europe to South America, to Australia, to North America, it's one or two animal focused startups for every 10 crop focused startups. Wow. So to me, it says a couple of things. One is that we... One is that we have a little bit of a branding problem, right? I think a lot of people think of animal ag and they think of, um, you know, a crusty rancher that's not open to uh, adopting new technology. And there are pockets where that's accurate. There are a lot of pockets where that's inaccurate, right? And I think these are business owners that are, you know, like everyone else, they're running a business looking for return on investment. Right. Um, and so... I would argue that one problem we have is that a lot of the technology that's coming to this space 
they don't have a clear value proposition, right? It's technology a little bit for the sake of technology as opposed to technology that has a very clear use case. Why is the user going to use this and value proposition? What, what's the dollar value? What's the ROI? What's the payback period? Whichever financial metric you want to look at um, that's going to incentivize the producer to, to adopt that technology. And so from that standpoint, I think ag, animal ag tech represents a huge opportunity uh, that's, that's untapped. I mean, we could talk in terms of dollars and size of the market. Um, you know, certainly it's a sizable market. So from that standpoint, that makes it attractive. Um, you know, there's 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 limited innovation flowing in. And, and yes, it's increasing, but it's still pretty limited. So there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, but, but like I say, I think one of the barriers is just this idea that, you know, we, the, the technology has not been working on the right problems. I think one way we fix that is a little bit by opening the doors, right? And if you look at, if you look at the swine industry specifically, I think this is also true for poultry and it's also true for feed yards, but let's talk swine specifically since that's your audience. Um, outside innovators don't know what the problems are that a hog producer needs solving. Right. The, the, the only people that know what problems need solving in hog production are people in the industry. And typically those people in the industry are not, they don't bring the technology side to bear. And so we have to find a way to kind of bridge that gap. Um, a model that I think is pretty interesting is what the Beef Alliance is doing. So that's uh, about 25% of the cattle feeding capacity. Those those uh, big players have come together and they've said, we need to engage startups. So they're running a startup pitch competition as a starting place, putting a $50,000 prize on it, but then also um, dangling out there for the winner of that startup pitch competition, um, a, a pilot project with one of the feed yards. And this is really in an attempt for them to connect early stage entrepreneurs working on some, a solution related to the cattle feeding segment uh, with their customers. So we can give them feedback earlier on and increase the probability that they'll be successful. And to me, that's a, that's a, that's a repeatable model that, that we can replicate by species. Um, you know, and that's, that's, that's just one of a million different ways that we could try to bridge that gap between people who know technology, people who have that innovative and entrepreneurial bent with the people that have the problems that need solving and have the, you know, the checkbooks to write the checks for those solutions. Amazing. That's amazing. Definitely something to to rep, be replicated in the swine industry, no doubt. And when you think about the, the pork supply chain as, as a whole, you know, what do you think are the drivers there? Oh, okay. Well, that's an interesting question. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that right in, um, well, I'm going to back up and say this, that in 2020, let's just break down what we saw from a COVID perspective, right? What we saw from a COVID perspective that was a little bit brutal and a little bit messy, a lot messy, <laughs> pretty ugly there for a while, right? Of, you know, we have processors that are having labor challenges that then the plants shut down. We don't have anywhere to go with live animals. And on the cattle side, cattle feeders can just hold those animals, right? It costs more money. We're losing profitability every day that those animals are in a feed yard past the kind of the optimum point to send them to the plant, but it's doable. Whereas in the pork side, um, different dynamics, right? And so a lot of producers, of course, you know, uh, we, we, we all know where that went. I bring that up to say, number one, what I think we saw is that the a lot of people are calling for a more resilient supply chain and they're calling out the fact that um, the supply chain broke during COVID. Um, I actually would applaud the industry. I would say that although it was messy and it was ugly and there was some really hard weeks in there for everyone um, in the industry, I think that the supply chain held much better. And I, I think enough, a lot of people are not giving the supply chain enough credit for what happened, right? And the fact that for the most part, consumers could still find pork on grocery store shelves, even through the worst of the, of the chaos early in the pandemic, right? So to me, that's the win. But then when you look at, okay, well, how do we, how do we improve it from there? I mean, I think one of the things we see is that, um, you know, there's a lack of optionality for a lot of producers. And let's let's take specifically those independent producers, that segment of the industry of, um, you know, there's 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 not a lot of optionality. I've got I've got one processor that I go to. And, um, you know, when that becomes then when that is not an option, whether it's for a temporary labor shutdown because of covid or for whatever reason. 
you get left a little bit high and dry, right? So how do you increase optionality for producers? Um, and I think that's a I think that's a big question that in both pork and beef, um, we don't have great answers to, right? Because there's a there's a reason the processing side of the industry is so consolidated because of the economics, because it's a volume game, all of those types of um, you know elements that we all know. There's a reason the industry structure is what it is, but. I think we also have to wrestle with the question of how do we increase, um, you know, optionality for the producer. Ultimately, how do you increase profitability for the producer, right? Um, so I think that's a that's a that's a whole question that could be tackled. Um, of course, then there's the the whole point around you know labor uh, and 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 how do we improve labor efficiency? How do we reduce labor dependence in the processing plants? Um, how do we, uh, you know, increase the amount of um, automation in processing plants, the, the amount of robotics that we're using uh, in order to, it, to decrease that dependence on labor? Um, I think we even saw that at a store level, right? From a, from a grocery retail store perspective is, you know, um, as, as, grocery stores struggled with labor, right? And, and as they, uh, you know, we saw more, um, you know, the larger cuts um, coming into the, into those stores, less labor there to do kind of the back of the store um, final butchering processes uh, that we would see final cutting processes. Um, you know, I think it just raises a lot of questions of like, where, where is the optimal place to allocate labor? Even if we're not going to reduce the number of headcount, how do we allocate labor differently at the farm, at the processing plant, at the retail store in order to optimize the operation and then at the retail store to optimize the customer experience, right? I love it. I love it. I love it. And, and on that aspect, when you think about the forces that are shaping the future of pork or meat in general, um, what comes to mind there? Yeah. So I'll briefly, I'll briefly mention one that I think is just a macro dynamic to keep in, in mind. Um, and then I'll explain how I weight that. So I think the macro trend to keep in mind, we talked about the amount of money flowing into, into ag tech, right? But then if you look at the amount of money flowing into alternative meats, right? And I, I, I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it's something like, it was something like 90 billion in 2020. So set that number that, that 90 billion against the 19 billion going into ag tech, right? And to me, that's the difference in what's going into ag tech is about how do we improve the industry? How do we improve uh, the operations at a, at a farm level? How do we improve the supply chain? Where And so that's 19 billion. Whereas that almost 5X more of that 90 billion going into alternative meats, that's about how do we replace the entire supply chain that exists around animal protein? Um, I, I'm of the opinion that that's actually like a massive just venture capital bubble um, that, you know, there's a lot of just group think going into the money that's flowing in that. Uh, however, I obviously have my animal protein, you know, I've got cattle here on the image behind me. This is, these are my parents' cattle. Like I have a vested interest in seeing the animal protein industry um, thrive in its, in its, um, in some version of its current form. Right. So I, I recognize that bias in there. But that being said, um, you know, I think that whole alternative meat space is something that a lot of a lot of capital is going into. Um, and you can kind of think of the alternative meat space as there's there's two categories within that. One is plant based, which is, you know, your your um, your beyond meat, your impossible foods. It's currently rolled out. You can get it at any grocery store. You can even get private label um, uh, plant based meat at, at your grocery store. Right. You can get it at some McDonald's, some Burger Kings. It's out there. And it's largely, you know, the venture capital on that side is largely flowing into marketing, right? Not, not so much product development because the product is there. It's really around marketing and how do we get people to, to use this um, and to try the product and then to buy it again. Whereas on the, the other category from an alternative meat standpoint is cell-based. And that's where, that's where a lot of the money is, is flowing and it's flowing specifically into product development and specifically into solving the problem of you know, if it costs $10,000 to produce one pound of ground beef, well, obviously a consumer is not going to buy that, right? So they're trying to figure out how do you get that price point down to parity? Um, and there are, there are some claiming that they can do that. Um, I, I think for the most part, 
they can't do that yet, right? So then the question becomes, does all of that venture capital, does it fund enough research? Does it uh, find the right research then to actually um, bring the price down on products like chicken breast, like you know ground beef that is grown in a lab? Um, and so that's a question we don't know, right? I, I think a lot of people would say that, that if it's going to happen, it's five to 10 years out. People inside that industry would argue that it's sooner, right? Regardless, I share that I share that not because I think that that is going to be the thing. Um, I'm obviously hoping that it's not candidly, right? Like, um, like I say, I'm, I'm hoping that that's not the case. However, I do think that's important context for for the ag industry to keep in mind is that there is this thing, and they're coming for you. <laughs> right? They're, they're literally coming for your supply chain. They're coming for your business. And that to me is a reason to keep in mind. Um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a reason to have a sense of urgency of how do we innovate our supply chains in a way that drives producer profitability and drives customer satisfaction, right? How do we, how do we address the issues that consumers are telling us? I would eat more meat except for X. I would eat meat more often except for X. I would feel better eating meat except for X, right? And whether that's, you know, everything from animal welfare, and I want to know more about that, to, um, you know, climate impacts, I think that's where the industry has to respond and has to has to lean into some of those um, those object- objectives that consumers have um, that can that can drive consumer satisfaction with with the products with the the products that are an output of the supply chain. Super interesting. And on the on this topic of innovation, uh, I guess sometimes uh, we don't think a whole lot about the, the innovation. You know. Uh, everyone is innovating at a small speed, but the thing is uh, velocity and speed, right? The speed of innovation, I think, is where the key is, and that's where we need to keep pushing. I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah, speed of innovation. And so so even that raises some interesting challenges from a technology and innovation standpoint, because, um, you know, just the, the life cycles of animals, um, you know, are unique across each species, the, the amount of time that, you know, pigs are in a grow out facility versus that poultry are in a broiler house versus the amount of time that, you know, cattle are in a feed yard. Every, every segment has its nuances, right. That, that kind of, um, that can be, uh, they can set the pace of innovation in some places um, for some technologies. And so it's just something to be, be mindful of, right? Whereas like on the row crop side, um, for the most part, everybody gets one crop per year. So you get one shot every year to try to adopt a new technology, to try to figure something out. Um, and so there are just some of these like biological constraints that we deal with in agriculture that, uh, you know, I think a software company in a, you know, in a widget producing industry doesn't have to navigate. So true. A little sidebar here. Have you spent some time thinking about um, social media and the concerns around that when it comes to our industry? Meaning, uh, you know, there was the rise of Facebook and Twitter, which they are now almost falling, let's call it. Mm-hmm. You know, last night, uh, Elon Musk said, I'm off of Twitter for a while. <laughs> you know, uh, mm-hmm. this whole thing that's happening. and um, And then you have... TikTok and Instagram, and now more recently Clubhouse. Funny enough, uh, Elon yeah. Musk actually joined that this week. I was listening to his interview there. But um, the point is, the, the uh, social media go up and down, and we we haven't even explored as an industry. So then, people are learning how to eat on TikTok. Well, at mm-hmm. least the next generation yes, and we are not there. So any any insights there? Yeah. So I'll say this in general, I have a little bit of a hang up with, and this is broader ag industry, but you know how in the last, like, let's call it five to seven years, maybe five to 10 years that the industry has had this whole, like be an advocate, right? Like tell people your story. And then there are some groups that have gone further and said, you know, hashtag think a farmer. I think all of that is a little bit, um, it's a little bit self-aggrandizing, right? It's a little bit uh, condescending to consumers because there's this whole idea of, let me educate the consumer. Let me Mm -hmm. educate the poor, dumb, innocent little consumer. Let me tell (laughs) them what they need to know. And I think that that is exactly the wrong attitude to have, right? Because that puts us in this position of we're right, they're wrong. Let me tell them all the reasons that I'm gonna keep my antibiotic practices exactly as they are. Instead of saying, 
okay, let me, let me go find out what the consumer is saying. And if I tweak this one thing, maybe that's going to unlock 10% more demand, right? Like to me, it's, it's, it's the difference of, it's the difference of a push mentality of I'm going to produce what I want to produce and I'm going to find a market. And if there's not a market for it, I'm going to go create that market versus a pull mentality that says, let me go listen to what my customer wants and then produce to that. And I think if you look across the broader business landscape, across the history of business, there are a few places where someone said, I'm going to not listen to my customer. I'm going to tell them what they need to know. And that ends successfully, right? So I, I would say I would say there's that, that whole attitude within the ag industry that I think is pretty problematic. And I think in a lot of places it allows producers and, and not just producers, but throughout the supply chain um, to have an element of hubris of, you know, we're right, they're wrong. Let me go, let me go correct them. Instead of just listening and adapting and, and, and responding um, where, where it makes sense, right? Where it makes business sense, where the numbers pencil out, if I can make this one tweak in my business and that's going to open up, you know, X amount more product or X amount higher price or what have you. So, so there's, there's that dynamic. Um, but then, you know, then there is the dynamic of, yes, the people, people are out there, you know, learning, they're learning how to, how to cook, how to purchase meat. You know, what does that look like? And that's different by generation, as we know. Um, I will say that I, I would commend the pork board. I think they've done some pretty interesting things, you know, working with like social media influencers. Um, a few weeks ago, I was just, you know, scrolling one of my favorite fashion influencers. And she was like, had a, had a pork um, dinner that she was preparing. And she was like hashtag team pork um, because she was, had a, had an affiliate marketing um, arrangement with the pork board, which I, I just thought that was interesting. So mm-hmm. I think they're doing some of those things. Um, a lot of other commodity groups, I would say are much further behind on that. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's kind of a, it's a tricky balance of, of how do you engage with your customers and let's just say consumers, how do you engage with your prospective shoppers and, and, view it as a two-way dialogue versus getting away from this mindset of let me educate them and let me tell them what to think and let me tell them why they, you know, why they are thinking wrongly <laughs> about our product. So I think there's a, it's, it's just a tricky balance there. Yeah. That's an interesting perspective. I, I, I like that. I like that. And uh, now um, you've published in the past about grocery tech uh, and, and how that relates to the future of meat and, and pork. What, what first, what is grocery tech and, and walk us through that concept? Yeah. So I think, you know, just, we talk about ag tech, we talk about animal ag tech, we talk about food tech, grocery tech to me is it's all the technology that is going to impact the, the retailer, the, the shopper experience at retail, right? So when I walk into a grocery store, what are all the ways that technology is impacting that experience? Um, the example that I used was from Amazon, right? So when I lived in San Francisco, there was a Amazon go store and there was actually probably two or three in the city, uh, at that time, they were just, they were just beginning to pilot the format. So basically how it works is you, you walk into the store, there's a, some little turnstiles there. You have to scan your, an app that's linked to your Amazon account in order to get through the turnstiles. Then you go into the store. All you do, you pick up off the shelf what you want. And then when you go to walk out, the turnstile is open. It's reading your app. You walk out and 30 seconds later, you get a receipt. The only, the only human that you interact with there is the person, the Amazon employee that's standing there making sure that people have their app downloaded and know how to get in the store because it's such a confusing concept. Mm-hmm. Not, not confusing is not the right word. It's a seamless concept and it's a seamless process. It's just it's such a different paradigm from what people are used to. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So anyway, the, the, and so the technology is, is really interesting because it's all about how you reduce friction. How do you, how do you reduce human contact? And I know some of your listeners probably just cringed when I said reduce human contact, because there are a lot of people <laughs> that say, I don't want to reduce human contact. We've done that too much in this world. I want, I want to keep human contact. And that's fine. That's fine. Not, not in the grocery store though. <laughs> not in the right? grocery store. Also not during a pandemic, right? Um, and so anyway, the so when people, when friends and family would come to visit me in San Francisco, like that Amazon Go store was kind of on my tourism stop, right? Like I'd take them to see the Golden Gate Bridge and I'd be like, okay, we gotta go see this Amazon Amazon Go store because it's so, it's so cool. Um, and then and then so that, that was a few years ago. And then just in the last, you know, 
18 months, couple of years, Amazon has then announced that they were going to start licensing that technology to other retailers, right? Which, which is really, is really interesting. I mean, you would expect that at kind of your, your higher end stores, your, your central markets for HEB, your Whole Foods, of course, since it's Amazon owned, Wegmans, those types of stores. Um, what's interesting though, is that we really haven't seen that. We haven't seen the technology roll out in a way that you would expect. And I actually wrote on this just, uh, just last week, but uh, to me, I, I think that that's, because both for both Amazon as well as for grocery retailers, because of the way the pandemic hit them and because of just the massive upshot in, in demand and it just created the need to focus on our existing business, focus on being product on the shelves. For Amazon, focus on getting products to our shipped out to customers. And for their grocery stores, it was, you know, focus on just keeping the stores stocked and, and getting people through the door. Um, and so there wasn't a lot of, of resources, either time or dollars, allocated to significant technology spends like that. Um, that's that's what I think the reason is that we didn't see more of that during the pandemic. Because if you look at through the pandemic, you know, the way the way everyone, every business has tried to reduce contact, reduce the, you know, transfer of, of, of money, the transfer, you know, any, any, any contact, um, that could potentially spread germs. Um, it just, it just creates this really beautiful environment where you would think that a technology like that, uh, what Amazon calls their just walk out technology would have really taken off and yet it didn't. So my hypothesis is that we'll see that here in the next few years. I will say it was really funny that I got quite a few replies to last week news last week's newsletter, and it was from the crowd that was like, you know, oh, I don't, I, I'm not going to let cameras watch me when I'm in a store. I'm going to go to the the store next door that doesn't have that, um, which is kind of a funny position. Uh, I mean, I understand it, and that's you know, I can imagine that there will be a lot of people like that, but then you know myself and probably my age peers, I think we're all like, eh, Jeff Bezos has all of our information about, you know, how we, how we think and shop anyway, but it's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm not concerned about it. So uh, just kind of different, uh, different reactions to it. But I would just say like all technology, it's all about, you know, there's trade-offs, right. And it's all about how is the data, what data is being collected and how is it going to be managed and used? Um, And so there is probably some of that that is yet to be seen, but it's, it's kind of interesting. Right. And, and it's, it's an interesting topic there because it, it, the whole thing around privacy. And I think a lot of, there's a lot of pushback to this big tech right now, a lot of pushback, right. From the, the U S government and other places. And, um, it would be interesting to see, but, but it comes back, I think to, to the privacy policy of, of each mm-hmm. company, you know, Apple yeah. seems to be a little better than some of the other companies and they are all updating their, policies now lately and uh, and you start thinking this i mean that's this new cars right the teslas and others they have a bunch of cameras around them they're yeah. recording every single thing right now you know absolutely uh, so it goes back to having a solid private privacy policy you know right and, and just the trust around that i mean think of, i i know a lot of people that in the last three weeks have moved from whatsapp to signal for messaging right. because whatsapp yep. changed their policy and so yeah. I, I exactly. think you're exactly right that 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 the 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 privacy policy what that does for the brand and really it's a it's about trust right it's about right. how do you how do you build and maintain trust with users right and the midterm is gonna what's gonna happen like I said the tr- the ones that build trust and and have solid privacy situation they they're gonna do fine the other ones are gonna go bankrupt you know right so it's interesting because that that connects perfectly with you know, I think if you look at, let's just say, especially on the, on the cattle side of, of animal protein, that a lot of, um, I think a lot of producers are resistant to individual animal identification. Um, and, and they're resistant to the idea of that information flowing through the supply chain, concerned about, you know, what government does with that information, concerned about what private companies do with that information, because the U.S. is a little bit further behind than some other regions, like Australia, for example, where they have a national animal identification uh, scheme set up, they kind of look at the U.S. and they say, you guys are missing out on the, the industry benefits of these types of programs because you're so worried about what happens with your individual data. 
And I would say, you know, I don't think that those producers are wrong to be worried about it, but I think that that does create challenges for tech companies coming into the space, again, to create the brand around, here's how that information is going to be used. What are, what are the commitments we're putting in place? What are the guardrails we're putting in place? How do we, how do we give the producer value through this technology solution? But how do we also address their concerns? Because without addressing those concerns, we're not going to have adoption. So again, listening to your market, right? That makes sense. Any insights on uh, venture investing in the animal health uh, situation? Yeah. So I did an interview with um, Fulcrum Global Capital here a couple of months ago that your listeners can, they can go look it up on the Prime Future uh, YouTube channel. It was, it was really a, a great interview, but it's kind, of, it's kind of interesting. You know, venture in animal health is, um, number one, there are not a lot of dedicated funds, right? Like most, most uh, investors that invest in, in animal health also invest in broader act tech. Um, one of the challenges is that a lot of the technology that might be similar on the animal health or the human health side, there could be, you know, similar opportunities uh, in terms of a, from a problem standpoint. However, in terms of a market, human is obviously a much bigger market and it's much more attractive. Um, and on the human side, we, you know, there's obviously less price pressure, right? Um, so there, there are a lot of reasons that then it becomes a challenge from, for investors to prioritize animal health over human health. So that's, that's just one thing that as an industry, it's just something we're up against, right? But um, nonetheless, I mean, I think, I think what we're seeing is, is, um, it is more investment in animal health largely as the industry is moving away from antibiotics. And so that opens up a whole suite of questions of, first of all, can we get the same performance without the use of antibiotics or with you know significantly pared down use of antibiotics? Um, everybody talks about the microbiome, but uh, what we've seen has been a lot of foo-foo dust with you know very unpredictable results, um, you know, very typically very low, uh, you know, let's say it's one point of feed conversion and you're only going to pick it up 20% of the time. Well, as you know, that's not very interesting to producers, right? So there's a lot of questions around how can technology come to play to help us um, both, uh, you know, just, just increase the rigor around that space. One company that I'm excited about is called Resilient Biotics. They actually just announced the funding round um, this week. But what they're, what they're really doing is if you look at, well, I'm going I'm to make a parallel here. If you look at the soil side of, the, of, of agriculture, there are a few companies that are really building their brand and building their product portfolio around testing and all focus on better understanding the soil microbiome and better analysis of it. And to the under the hypothesis that if we better understand what's happening in the soil microbiome, we can be more targeted and prescriptive and precise in the products we use to get the outcomes we want from a soil microbiome perspective. We haven't seen any companies doing that in animal, in animal health and animal nutrition, right? We've seen a lot of companies throwing microbiome products at the wall, hoping that producers will put them in, but without, without any significant understanding of what they are, or how they work. This company, Resilient Biotics, they're, they're doing, trying to do with the gut microbiome, what some of those companies are doing on the soil microbiome side of saying, we need to understand it first. We need to, to, to be able to analyze the, the gut microbiome so that we can then understand what are the products that are going to help us get to the outcomes we want, whether that's from a gut health and performance standpoint, or whether that's from, you know, they're, they're starting with a microbiome product that's a therapeutic for bovine respiratory disease and looking at, you know, some, what is, what's the corollary look like in swine, um, and so to me, that's pretty interesting, right? How do we, how do we bring data and rigor to the microbiome space uh, as, as producers begin to look for alternatives? Yeah, very interesting. I, I brought a few, you know, microbiome folks in, on the podcast and, and it turned, I think the bottom line is that there's a lot of uh, observational studies where, hey, if you do this, it's associated with that, but then you don't understand cause and effect so much right now, you know? So. Yeah, we don't really know the mechanism of action, but here's what it could be. Yeah, right. and, and just a lot, a lot of those products that I mean, you know, this better than anybody else. A lot of those products, 
they don't have a lot of science behind them, right? They've got one or two studies that were, you know, typically pretty small studies. Uh, and so there's, you know, even just from that standpoint of not a starting place is just how do we get more science behind those products? So producers know what result to expect and what, how the, that product should be, uh, you know, what's the best feeding program? What's the, what's the optimal outcome? Then when you take it to the next layer of like what resilient biotics is doing of, of taking a data-driven approach to understanding the microbiome in order to then match the right products um, or understanding the microbiome in order to create products, that's kind of the next level, right? So I'm hopeful that we'll see more of that type of technology in this space. Right, right. You know, being fair to to some companies, you know, there's there's definitely a handful of companies that do more research than majority of the you know than all the others. Fair enough. Uh, but uh, yeah, in general, I think it's a fair statement there. Uh, when do you think Amazon uh, jump in? Yeah, so I've kind of written about this. Um, because I, it, 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 to me, it speaks more to supply chain structure than anything else, right? So if you look at, um, if you look at dairy, where Walmart, uh, you know, had previously been a customer um, of all of the major bottling plants and was, you know, we're, we're pulling in uh, either private label or, you know, or branded milk. But Walmart was a customer of the bottling plants. A few years ago, Walmart said, you know what, we're going to build our own bottling plant, right? They didn't go in, they didn't buy any cows, they didn't get into milk production, but they bought their own bottling plant. And then you see that on the poultry side uh, with a slightly different twist where Costco said, you know, those $5 rotisserie chickens are a really big part of our business strategy. We need to, we need to have a better handle on that supply and have a better control of that supply. So they built an entire chicken complex in Nebraska uh, to supply rotisserie chickens, basically to Costco stores west of the Mississippi. So in that instance, they, they, set up a, a, it's a very traditional model in poultry of they own the complex, they have contract growers, um, you know, so it's, it's, it's fully vertically integrated of a Costco operation. So my question is, you know, when does, when do, when does Amazon, when do they decide, you know, we want to go further upstream, we want to own a little bit more of the supply chain. Um, and, I, you know, that maybe that's a little bit clickbaity to ask that question, because everybody likes to think about what Amazon's going to do next. I think the bigger question is, when, when do uh, retail... When do Tesla jump in? <laughs> yeah, exactly. When, when, when does Elon Musk decide to get into yeah, the business? Exactly. Um, but to me, the bigger question is, you know, I think the approach that Amazon takes of it's a very data driven business. It's a very, um, you know, they, there's a lot of machine learning. There's a lot of artificial intelligence throughout every element of their of their entire um, business processes. Right. Whether that's from an uh, AWS cloud hosting that business or whether it's their traditional, you know, fulfillment business. My question is, when does that type of mentality come to the ag industry, right? When do retailers begin to have those, that level of expectations of the data and the precision with which producers and processors are managing their supply chains? Um, and what, what impact is that going to have? Because I think that could really change uh, the mentality and how a lot of these packers, especially how they operate, um, which, you know, which could have some pretty interesting implications. Very cool. Any insights on the fintech and and any opportunities there? Yeah, I I'm look. I'm a sucker. I I love fintech. I th I think fintech is really just a fun space. Uh, I mean, we, we've we've most of us are using Venmo, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of us have have um you know a, some sort of a high yield savings account with an online only bank because you can get a higher rate, uh, interest rate than you can with a with a traditional bank that has higher costs. Um, you know whether it comes to insure insure tech, which I think of as kind of a subset of of fintech, um. Uh, you know, there's companies like Lemonade that are that are digital first experiences. And so that changed their entire operational model. Um, it changes their entire cost structure. It changes how they, they serve a customer and that customer experience. Uh, so there's a lot of ways that fintech is changing financial services, um, whether those are targeted towards the elderly or people in their wealth building years or teenagers, right? I mean, and there are products that are specifically for parents and teenagers, uh, like credit cards that have certain limits or, you know, things like that. So 
All that to say, then if you look at fintech as it relates from a from a B two B environment that we're operating in, um, you know there are a lot of industries where where fintech has um, has has impacted the financial services that are available. Who gets credit? How do you how do you lower the cost of that capital? Um, you know what? Who has access to what markets? Um, you know there's a there's a lot of different lenses that could take. Uh, and so my my question is, you know, what are some of those opportunities on the, uh, in the animal ag space? We, we do see some examples of that on the crop side. Um, but I think, I think it will be interesting to see where will we see some fintech plays, uh, in the animal ag side. And there, there are very few you could point to today or very few that I could point to maybe, maybe others are aware of them. And if that's the case, I would, I would love to know about them. Uh, but, but right now that, you know, it's, it's largely the fintech plays are, are on the crop side. Um, and so I would say like an example of that would be growers edge where what they're trying to do is, is, uh, help producers manage the risk of, trying and adopting uh, new products, right? So they basically have a financial instrument that's allowing the grower who's going to use a new product, um, whether that's a new input, um, you know, or a new type of seed or what have you, uh, and, and Grower's Edge, their financial instrument is going to help offset the risk that the grower is taking in trying that new product, which I don't understand the ins and outs of how that works. I just think it's a really interesting example of trying to rearrange and reallocate risk and reward um, from a financial perspective. Wow. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. And as we wrap up here before the three questions that we ask every guest, uh, any closing ideas and or suggestions for the pork producers and, and the pork business in general? Yeah. I mean, look, here's my suggestion is I, 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 I would never encourage anyone to adopt technology that doesn't make absolute perfect business sense, right? I'm not a technology for the tech, sake of technology kind of person. I'm a technology for the sake of business outcomes type person. But with that, what I would say is that I think producers need to engage with technology companies, right? If you, if you want better products, if you want products that meet your your business objectives, we have to find ways to get that feedback and to get that engagement, um, that, the, that engagement happening. So if you look across the swine industry, there are probably five to 10 companies right now trying to bring um, hardware and software solutions to producers. And if you're a producer that's interested and roll, but, but rolls your eyes and says they're not ready yet, that's fine. I completely support you in that position. And I would agree with you. Go, go build a relationship with those companies and, and help them, help them know this is what I need in order to adopt that technology so that we can, we can iterate faster. We can get that technology happening faster um, and, and, and make it make sense. Right. So I think just engage with the technology segment. Uh, a lot of producers are uncomfortable with that, but producers hold the most important intelligence in their, in their minds. And that's the practical context of, the constraints that need to be considered um, for, for tech products to be adopted. Very cool. So for the tech companies, don't try to find a solution for a problem that doesn't exist. Exactly. Right? Go find the problems that we need solving. Yes. I love the it. The big ones. It is time to our famous three. Used in more than 1 billion pigs worldwide, Circumvent G2 vaccines from Merck Animal Health provide the monumental protection swine herds need in the ever-evolving fight against circovirus. Circumvent PCVG2 and Circumvent PCV-MG2 are evolutions of the original vaccine, modified to deliver the same efficacy in a convenient one or two dose option for increased flexibility. That's protection you can trust. Learn more at circumvent-g2.com. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, Access our partner, thepigsite.com. So what's your favorite uh, park-related book or resource? Could be meat or technology. Yeah, so I, this, is, this is not pork-related necessarily. This is ag-related, but I'm gonna, I'll, give you, um, I'll give you two, actually, um, that are kind of my favorite resources. One is the Future of Ag podcast uh, with Tim Hamrich. I think that's, he does a great job talking with entrepreneurs, um, you know, talking with those around the ag ecosystem to understand where where technology is going and where the industry is going. So that's a fun resource. Um, another one that is 
it is a little bit more focused on the crop side, but there's a lot of just general business strategy in there as well is Shane Thomas and his weekly newsletter called Upstream Ag Insights. Uh, that's one that I def- definitely recommend as well. So those are a couple of just broader ag industry resources I would recommend. I love it. How about uh, a book or resource outside of ag? Yeah. So um, one of the more interesting ones that I've read recently, um, it's called Never Split the Difference. So it's a book yeah. on negotiating. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you've heard of it. Yeah. Written by a former FBI negotiator uh, called Never Split the Difference. But that's that's really an interesting book that I'm reading right now that I think is, um, you know, kind of about taking a little bit more holistic look at, at, at relationships and partnerships and, um, uh, and how to we get to better outcomes for everyone, which again, in the realm of some of the things we've talked about today of kind of those dual objectives of increasing producer profitability and increasing consumer satisfaction, taking that broader look. So so lastly, what do you think sets apart successful swim professionals? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to answer that with another favorite resource of mine. So there's a podcast called, uh, it's called Farnham Street and uh, some also, also, also called the Knowledge Project. So um, they, one of the things that they talk about a lot, they, they interview people and, and try to understand decision-making and they talk about mental models a lot um, and mental models being, you know, how we view any, how we view the world in general, but then how we, ideas that we have uh frameworks that we have in our minds about how we view any one specific thing. Um, and I think one of the big ideas from there is that we have to be able to update our mental models, right? We can't, we have to be able to, um, to kind of that whole idea of strong convictions loosely held, right? I'm going to update my mental models. I'm going to update my convictions as I gather new information. I think that's what separates, you know, whether it's in the swine industry or anywhere else, I think that's what separates really successful people from uh, those that get maybe a little bit stuck um, is that those that are, that are the most successful, they can take in new information and figure out how do I assimilate this with what I already know? How's that going to change my behavior moving forward? How's that going to change my mental model or my kind of my core assumptions about something, whether it's, you know, um, what's the best uh, feed additive to include or whether it's, you know, how, how am I running this business? What are my financial objectives? So I think just that notion of updating our mental models uh, is, is really important. I love it. Right. The, the, the fixed and the, and the growth mindset type of situation. Jeanette Barnard, thank you so much for all the insight. Uh, certainly, we never had anything like that in the podcast before when it comes to, to technology and, and startups. So, thanks so much, Marcio. Imagine if, with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact by bringing from hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of swine nutrition on this seven-week-long elite online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding. It's conducted by myself, Dr. Marcio Gonçalves, and my world-class invited speakers. Additionally, you enjoy an exclusive community to exchange ideas. Go now to www.eliteswinenutritionist.com.